Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. It's amazing when you chat with someone that on the surface looks like they come from a completely different background and different experience and yet there's been so much in this conversation with Barra Cerner that I related to, that I resonated with. We, And funnily enough, we talk a lot about balance, right? So despite the fact that we come from these different upbringings, the balance of the conversation meant that we got so much wisdom and so much gold out of this conversation. Barra shares how disconnecting from her family at quite a young age and how there was a a great deal of anger within inside her that needed to be processed, that needed to come out. And as long-time listeners of this podcast will know, this is something I've talked a lot about myself. I've had challenges with that. So we talk about the addiction of anger. We talk about the impact of family. And we talk a lot about balance and how important balance is. It's a bit of a buzzword in so many areas, but it is a crucial part of the extremes of life that you can be drawn from one extreme to the other, but ultimately we need to come back to center. And despite the fact that it is a bit of an overused word, it's still one of the most important parts of your self-improvement journey. Enjoy this chat. I certainly did. Hey, everyone, and please welcome my guest today, Bara Serna. Bara, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. Thank you for coming on. Now, in, uh, in Australia, whenever, whenever I've traveled, like for us um, Anglo-Australians, fairly simple, most of us only speak one language. So when we travel, we go and we, we hear all these people that have, you know, that, that speak um, multi-languages. And, and for you, you said you speak nine different languages, right? So I always feel a bit envious, but now you're just putting me to shame. Nine languages. How on earth does that happen in your life? Um, honestly, I, I blame my brain. All the credit goes to my brain. It's, it's yeah. everything is outside of me. It's all my brain. Um, I think I just have a nick for languages. Um, very early on, I, my mom would speak German to me. There was Russian around me. I'm from Czech Republic. Um, I moved to the Netherlands and then later on in my late teen years, I just traveled the world and mostly I found myself in places where they didn't speak English. Um, so you learn real quick when no one speaks English, which is still my, one of my favorite ways to learn. Yeah. And then, yeah, before you know it, you speak 
languages. Well, some people, I think some might have a better skill for it than others, but uh, yes, for uh, very impressive. But we didn't come here to talk languages. Uh, so as my listeners know, the grief code is all about, well, what, what was the big moment for you? And you said for you really it was stepping away from your family, but more specifically from your mother. Was there, yes. a, was there a moment or was it there a whole lot of events that led up to that tipping point? Um, the relationship with my mother has always been a turbulent one. And I have left uh, the home scene significantly early in ages that people are not supposed to leave home. How old were you? Um, the first time when I left, I was 15. Yeah, right. Um, and I came back later on at an age of 18 again, I guess. Um, coming from East Europe specifically with Christian roots, there is this family is everything. Blood is thicker than whatever there is. And there's this almost this guilt, right? That you're supposed to accept everything your family does. Yeah. Um, and it... And I don't want to swing the complete modern way where there's every like family's nothing anymore. And we're all independent. I'm like, no, there's very important roots and connections in family. However, I do not think that family should be a free out of jail card to treat each other less than optimal or in everyone's best intention. Yeah. hundred percent. So upon growing into a more like young adolescent, the relationship with my mother would remain turbulent and it wouldn't matter how much um, external counsel I would seek, you know, to either better myself in communication or expressing like, you know, what I would need as a young adult versus as a kid, you're kind of like at the mercy, I want to almost say, right, from uh, from the authorities who take care of you. Um, but as an adult, I feel the relationship should be at least moving towards a more balanced one which didn't happen um and without completely disregarding what my mom went through because she went through a, a very very harsh life herself there's only so much compassion i can conjure up um for certain behavior so yeah. seven years ago um after trying left and right and her expression being look i'm your mother I will never gonna change. This is your problem. Take it or leave it. And I kid you not. It's like time stood still. And I remember where I was sitting. I remember exactly what I smell. I I can see her still. It was like the room had filled up with all my ancestors' future selves. Anything. I, and I'm not even that spiritual. But it's it's like the room filled up and told me this is it. Everyone's clear in their communication. You need to leave. And I took that as a sign because one thing I can do, absolutely respect about people is when they're clear in their intentions. Um, and I have to respect when their intentions doesn't ma don't match mine. Yeah. So I left. And that's when like a whole trajectory of different type of maturity, growing up, grief, sadness, anger started and was a huge catalyst into where I am right now in my life. But that's, I feel, the moment you realize that the people who are supposed to take care of you are not coming to save you, by lack of better wording, I feel that's when you step into a different level of maturity um, that might 
in the moment, not be the most pleasant one, but it's a necessary one. A hundred percent that, that call, then no one's coming to save you. And to me, it's only grief that leads you to that point. Absolutely. And I would say, I would argue like in a, in a utopic world, we would have a different rite of passage, a more healthier, connected one. But that's, again, utopia. We're not in utopia. We're in the real world. So this yeah. is how it went for me. Um, and I have been extremely beyond blessed and lucky to have friends and people that did care of me and let me completely dissolve on the couch and have my rage and everything that came with that to find myself in this space. Like, I don't even know who, 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 who am I if I'm not someone's daughter? Yeah. Does so, that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's letting go of that codependency, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah which is a massive one. You, you, you described a, a, a moment there where you said it was like time stood still. And I was straight away drawn to my moment like that, which was when, when my dad came to the door, I, I talk about this a lot and, and saying, oh, that money that you owe me, don't worry about paying it back. And that was my time stood still moment because I'm like, oh, he knows he's dying. Like he hadn't been well and it was like, it, and I couldn't, I just couldn't speak. Now, I'd never really realised that, everyone has a moment like that until you just said that it's like, but that that's the moment time stands still. So in that moment, like, can you remember, can you remember sort of what that felt like? Was it, was it confronting? Was it, was it scary? So I had always thought that um, impactful moments would feel and look in the way like you kind of see in movies where like, your mind is racing and you have all these thoughts and you're on this crossroad and your mind is calculating where to go. Um, but I would say it's actually the opposite. Like you become completely quiet and there's a part, cause I know how disassociating feels. This is not it. There's a part when you're and in yourself and almost an Eagle view eye simultaneously. Yeah. Um, and it becomes mega quiet, like crispy clear. Like, you know, when snow has just fallen and no one has touched it yet and there's no sound like yeah. that's how it felt. Yeah. Wow. It's presence, right? It, it draws you straight back to the Full present on. moment. Yeah. Full yeah. on. I imagine though, leading up to that point for you to have that level of clarity, you must've already been starting to unravel some of this stuff with your mum. Yes. Um, and I, I, don't, I, I always think that a lot of the moments leading up to it are often like high tense feelings, right? Like there's a lot of anger, feeling injustice, um, trying to make things work, which I think everyone's doing their best to whatever extent they can. Um, but at one point, it's having even a conversation with yourself how much harm, disrespect, um, again, it's so hard to use all these terms because like the internet world took all these terms and ran with them. Yeah. Um, but how, how much are you willing to accept and what's the stake? And at one point I feel it becomes disproportionately disbalanced or unbalanced. And that's the moment where you have to um, ask for, at least for yourself, like a lot of, I see a lot of people 
having relationships with other people when they know that person is never going to change. It might be a little bit an unhealthy relationship and, and there's an acceptance, right? There's no more fighting it. So for me, the crossroads was like, either I'm going to fully accept this um, and not no more fighting. It's just like, just take it, grow, leave even a little bit more hard skin, just take it or go away. But there's there, th this, this demon tangle. We're not going to do that anymore. Cause that's yeah. how it feels to me. Like your inner wounds come with my inner wounds and we just try to battle out whose inner wounds are more justified or righteous. And we're just going to sit and do this demon tangle. And at one point it's like, I'm exhausted of the demon tangle. I love that. My experience was that I can remember the, the moment in my teens where I did give up that fight and just got to that level of acceptance and the realization for me much later in life was that was a moment of just giving up so much power. Mm. The moment you, you just go accept what is and then just tolerate shit that you just don't want to tolerate mm -hmm. is the moment that you just, you, you're giving it all up and you're, you're then being driven by other people's agendas and stories. But the moment you make the decision you made, which was, not not doing this anymore i'm not going to accept this anymore that that's the moment where you can set yourself free so if we backpedal would you have had moments earlier in your life where you did just have that level of acceptance and and probably tolerate things that you shouldn't have absolutely and mostly with family because anyone you'll ask in my outside world they'll be like i am probably way too hard on people i have a close to zero tolerance um so there was this guilt, and I, I'm referring to it as cultural or Christian guilt, whether it was with my grandma, like her mom, right? Like I've seen her do the same thing and her moving away from it was moving to the other side of the world. That was her moving away. Um, and every time she would come back to her mom, she would just tolerate it and accept it. And I'm just like, this, is, this can be it. We cannot all just do this cycle over and over and over and over again. Like, yeah. That can be life. So it so for sure during teenager years specifically, there's been like, and even she would be verbally about it. Like, I'm your mom. You'll have to accept this. You'll have to put up with this. And that was very much the rule in cultural, you know, East Europe, where yeah. the authority, where family, this you don't have a thing. You don't have a saying as a um, younger person. So it's been probably like the whole life and seeing it with my grandma and her other daughters, it's again, it keeps recycling itself. And I feel we are extremely blessed in the sense that we are the first generation where we can actually have insightful conversation with our parents because we're not being bombarded or we, you know, the communists have finally left when I was like, what, three or something. So there's not this external constant survival um, going on, which is a phase that actually then invites introspective research conversation with other people, mm. I think. Yeah, no, 100%. The, the sort of penny drop moment there for me was because uh, just watching my dog, my little therapy dog here, just he was sort of fitting through that whole thing. It's not for you, it's not just your journey, but this is a whole generation culturally of letting go of that control that was 
placed on families whether they liked it or not mm-hmm. wow so so you've gone the completely the other way and and like what i know of you is yeah you, you call it how it is and unapologetically and there, there are times there where not times people need to hear that like you can't keep running for things i think we live now in a world that's uh people get so offended by things and yes. if you get offended by something what you're getting shown there is there's something that you need to address Fully, the offense yeah. is yours, yours alone. Yeah. There's a whole lot of other people who are hearing and reading that same thing who, who, who aren't offended by that. It's like, Absolutely. Yeah, you, you watch comedians, oh, I can't remember who it was now, but one of them might have been Jim Jeffries, and he was saying, our job is to take it to the line, just to that edge. So you can't judge us for where the line was 10 years ago and call us out on that because that was the line. Yes, you've moved the line, great, and we take it here, but you can't judge us on the past. So it just keeps coming back to that place of like, well, we get to make our own choices. And so is that, is that something you've experienced as well as like the people getting offended, has they're not realising that it's actually their own stuff to deal with? Absolutely. And I would even argue that the line has not moved at all, but our oh, place yeah. towards the line has changed. So we're, we're like significantly closer to it. Like, so everything feels a little bit more scarier. Um, and, and I completely attribute that to being East European and we cultural differences because here in the West, right, everything, there's a lot significantly more individualism. And I'm, when I refer to the West, I refer to the modern West. So Australia, um, UK, Netherlands, a little bit of Germany, but not completely America and Canada. That's like the modern, modern West and New Zealand, probably. Yeah. Um, because being offended, first of all, is for the weak. And being offended is a luxury problem. <laughs> the Love fact it. that we can have all these opinions about things, and that means that we're not in survival mode. And I love that for everyone. I wish for the whole world that no one would have to be in survival mode at any point, but it is a luxury problem. So everyone being offended, um, I have currently, because obviously our perspective on the world changes and evolves, but currently I am feeling that it has more to do with your perspective on life. And if you feel like a perpetual victim you'll feel constantly attacked. Any feedback would feel like an attack, like a personal violation. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, if you consider yourself a strong person, your perspective, no one is trying, no one is out there attacking me whatsoever. No. I'm just no. existing. The majority of the world is also just existing. Most of the people aren't even noticing me. So let alone, they woke up that day and thought, who am I going to hurt and who am I going to attack? And I'm, I'm choosing violence today. Yeah. Um, and aside of that, I have this very, very, very arrogant notion, which always pisses off a lot of people. I only accept insults from people within my tax bracket and higher. And that is not... <laughs> <laughs> moment of silence for everyone getting upset that and i know i'm using a monetary um you know measurement but i'm using it mostly as to i can't accept insults just from everyone that's just like i just like i don't accept advice from everyone yeah so 
again, for assuming that the world is out there to insult me, hurt me, attack me, that's a very self-centered way. And I, I just don't see any evidence of that being the case. Yeah. I'm and also there. East Europe, we are known for the most dark humor. We're laughing through communism. We are t making dead baby jokes. We're doing all the whole thing and we're hysterically laughing. Coping mechanisms, the way yeah. that it's, again, there's definitely a cultural thing as well. So, yeah. Oh, I might have to check out some of the humor then. If you can't, if you can't laugh at it, well then, again, you've got more to to address there. Oh, that was so good, and and I know this is going to be probably confronting to a lot of people, but ultimately, that's what you want to get to—to to be able to walk through life and and just things just slide straight past you. Because if you're constantly being triggered or upset or offended, then as you rightly described, you're, you're constantly in that survival mode. I was actually drawn to, like you mentioned communism, when you were talking, I was like, I was drawn to those people that grow up in places where their, their life depends on their every move. They don't care about whether they're offended by something. They're, they're literally just trying to navigate. And so I hadn't thought about it like that. We're actually come to that point where, no, no, if you're, if you're having to deal with that, you're not, you've stepped out of survival mode. That's massive. But the thing is, is that you can keep, uh, dipping back into survival mode by staying in that place of the victim and the offense. So how have you learned to step out of that victimhood and to step into that place of, well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to take offense to this. I'm not, but I'm also not going to tolerate this. Um, fully attribute this to my mom, ironically, because she yeah. was a, not, not even, I don't want to even go into like survivor, which she was. But she was, uh, we're solving shit now. Oh, pardon me. We're solving things now and we'll, we'll have feelings about it later. And that's mostly has been my um, modus operandi for a long time. And I had to learn to actually process the feelings at some point though, because I've never learned that in a like healthy way. So I would be just yeah. like, it's kind of like a ticking time bomb, which was great at solutions. Like everyone <laughs> can come to me. I got you. Um, yeah. But not having a way to process, right? So that came significantly later. I'm thought, thinking like early 20s, like, okay, I'm reaching the ceiling of all, like how much my body can take. Yeah. What are we going to do with this? Because I've done the whole, okay, let's, you know, let's do, let's do all the drugs. Let's shove all the cocaine down our nose so we don't feel or whatever. Um, yeah. That seemed to not be helpful and it seems to also not be a solution so how do we actually get to solution and you start experimenting with different stuff coaches therapist um going completely into nature going to you know work workaholism etc like trying everything right like different jackets like a buffet of life i always say it's like let's try everything and they are yeah. like this seems to work for now yeah um so yeah i attributed that absolutely to my mom First, we go into solution, and later we'll have, deal with feelings. So I'm curious because, uh, you know, you talked about that family unit and the, and the, and the natural uh, anger that was sitting there. That's something I can relate to a lot. And, and that phrase you use then, the ticking time bomb, because when we bottle it up and we suppress it and then we, we just go straight to solution mode or – or just avoid it altogether, then it still sits in there. 
and it's still there. And, and for me, I had different places where that ticking time bomb went off. Did what, you have- What way did it show it for you? Like what way did it come out for you? So I would, I would spend all day at work. So this is post my big grief moment, right? So before that, I was just still suppressing, but there's nothing like a moment, a life-defining moment to bring it all to the surface. So I would keep it all together at work, but under the surface is all this anger. So then mm. I would come in the door and, you know, my wife's worked, kids are probably a bit over whatever they'd been doing, whether they've been at school or whatever it is, and everything, everyone's on edge. And then that's the safe place because that's, that's what I would have had modelled, I imagine, is that's the safe place where it all comes out. So then I would mm. take it out of my family, the people who I'd least wanted to, but you've got to be professional, mm. right? You've got to keep it all together mm. and you're out there in the, in the outside world. So that was one place and the other place was sport. So, ah. again, sport, it's almost, it's almost celebrated to some extent. We grow up watching these people uh, having these reactions. Like I'm not sure if you're familiar with rugby, but – uh there's there's two codes rugby leagues like gospel here in where i live and we we celebrated the the brawls when everyone was in there and punching on and that sort of stuff so it almost became normalized to the point where that was my outlet and i'm talking only a few years ago that i actually managed to get this under control and mm. then realizing that it almost becomes like an addiction this this anger mm. outlet because it feels so good Oh, oh, righteous anger is so good. <laughs> so good. Oh, yeah. And then, and then people go, Oh, no, it can't feel good. But it's like, oh, there's oh, a, no. it, with a client this best. morning. Yeah, a client this morning, and he was just externalizing his anger about someone he works with. And I was just like, Oh, this is so good. He's doing that without guilt. He's not doing it to the person. He's dealing with that calmly, but he's allowing himself to process it now in a safe place and makes all the difference. So, like, how did you manage to to work through that, or or do you still have moments now where it comes to service? Because I know I do. I um, to start with the, the the latter part of your question, I have to be cautious because it loves resurfacing, yeah, and it's such a familiar state of being. Yeah. Um, so I call that the the alcoholic who's in the bar, like I have to be very specific when I allow myself in certain spaces mentally and physically, because I will latch onto anger and I will let it fuel me and I'll get even richer and I'll, you know, put my middle fingers in the air. And it's a very, it's a very immature side of me, right? Like it's the inner teenager who's just angry at the world, which yeah. has brought me so much in life. Um, so I have to be cautious because it's always kind of lurking around the side because there's enough to be angry about yeah. whether I want to pull it from my past, from external circumstances, from things that have been done onto me, politics, economy, like I can pick one, pick <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, so it's always lurking. So I'm, 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 I would arguably call myself the, the anger addict. Um, but it's a choice every day, just like actual addiction. Um, how do I want to show up for myself? How do I want to show up for my future self? And what is that resulting in the current self-care like um, without, and knowing, which I feel like is the hardest part in everything, um, doing certain things of self-care that will not have a direct return of investment of instantly feeling good. Because feeling good is not the goal, even though we would like that always, at least I would love feeling good all the time. 
Yeah. But it's the tension, the holding and the void in between where it's like, I'm not in the feeling good yet. Anger is lurking at my shoulder. How am I going to hold the tension in between and how I'm going to behave in between? Yeah. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It does. Yeah. And it's, and it's strange, not strange. It's, it's pretty cool. You use that description anger addiction, because I think I did an individual episode on this just recently for me. Actually, it might have been last week's interview. Anyway, by the by, for me, it was like I was walking the dog listening to um, Russell Brand's recovery book, right, on addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he says everyone's addicted to something. And that was like that moment of like this big slap in the face from like, oh, it's anger. I am addicted to anger because like we've been describing, when it comes out, like later afterwards you feel guilty. But at the moment, at the time, it feels good and again as you described just it fuels you like mm-hmm. i was straight away drawn to two things one is in football i would play unbelievably well when i was in, in the contest i was in the competition and i was like i was in a fight with someone at the same time sometimes that would be the case in business too where i'd be like fuck you like i I'm going to show you. I'm going to get this mm. done. Yeah. Oh, so potent. So potent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then it becomes like, well, the, the addiction is I, to perform well, I need to have both of those things. And it's like, well, that's not sustainable. And, if, and again, because of the, from my experience, it's the aftermath, right? It's then the guilt and the shame and what are people going to think and all those different things. And a full like adrenaline drop, like actually your body being depleted. Yeah. Um, again, without referencing too much to drugs, but for those who have been in drugs, like being on full alert and like thinking you're like, there is an alertness and clarity within anger. That's so, that's so rich. And I would argue that there is a, like, I think there's an hierarchy of addiction and we kind of like exchange them. Like I'd rather be addicted to sport or business than, you know, self-destructive behavior, anger or whatever. Um, And then hopefully you move in hierarchies to more healthier mechanisms. Yes. But yeah, there's, it's so potent, so potent. Absolutely. Look at me being like, oh, I miss my anger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Every now and then we can just tune into it, right? If we really need something. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. I, I usually uh, just follow the nudges of what shows up in my body when, when I hear my guests talking. And when you talked about, um, uh, I think you were describing your mum and you talked about unbalanced and and I kind of got like a lower back sort of feeling. Like does, does unbalanced show up for you at different times? Like is that pattern then repeated? Yes, absolutely. So I would – myself, I would call myself an extremist and the majority of the people around me would call me an extremist too. And until the recent, like maybe like five year, I'm actually vouching for balance, which is my inner teenager still like looking at side eyeing me from the corner, like, excuse you. We were like rebelling against like balance because there's these like negative connotations for me at least to yeah. balance because it sounds mediocre it sounds mm. um that's mm. the that's the the affiliation that i have with that ver- word so now that i'm even in the entrepreneurial space right let's be honest the moment you are an entrepreneur of any or a business person you go extreme you're gonna get your results yeah 
Um, and then later you're kind of like, okay, I'm getting burned out or I have to like calm down or it's like not working right. So you'll have to find a balance. Yes. Um, but balance, people simply like don't really stand out or they don't really make history. Like no history book is saying like, this was uh, Hans Schimmler and he was an extremely balanced person. Like no story starts like that. <laughs> That's so good. Just like no story starts with, there was this one evening and I had a salad. And then like, it's always like, you know, this one evening I was angry or I was at a party or I was doing this or I was drinking, whatever it is. Like again, balanced things don't make history. So there's an, a connotation that I'm like, uh, Okay, so what does balance look like for me? I have to, I'm still actively reframing that word. Um, and being a, even though I don't believe in um, astrology, I always say I'm a triple Capricorn, which is apparently like a real like go getter thing. Yeah. Um, I like, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I like, I like business. I'm a workhorse more so because I don't have to anymore. I retired two years ago and now I want to work even more, whether yeah. that's in business or I'm working at the ranch shoveling horse poop. It's the best, the yeah. best. I can do all in. Um, but seeing it from a, a, a now a more removed perspective, we have the hustle bros who are like, go, go, go. We'll sleep later. Sleep is for <laughs> losers. And then you have the other side, which is extremely like the love and gaslight community who are all like, oh, you just have to think things and like you have to just be and exist. And I'm like, no, there's got to be a balance in between. Yeah. Again, coming yeah. back to balance. Yeah. So good. To me, the word that comes up is sustainable. But without balance, oh, it's not sustainable, right? Because I'm the same. Good word. Yeah. So, so living that, that burnout pattern. So today's my first day back from a holiday. I feel amazing. And it's always a reminder that, okay, like this is why I take more breaks than, than I ever used to, right? It used to be, mm. you know, we starting out in business. I, I didn't have a business background, so it was like you just got to go hard. And I did that for about two years until you get burnt out and your body says we're going to break for a week whether you like it or not. And right. that's realizing that, oh, my coach two years ago that said you need to break every quarter was right. But mm. they were only half right because you need to break even more than that. And it's not just breaking, it's actually being able to switch off and completely detach, not mm -hmm. be the business owner when you're on yes. break. Otherwise, you're just doing the same pattern. So so now that you're in this space, and I love that you're retired, but you're not retired because I had that conversation with the kids a few times, like, I'm not retiring. Like, right. I love this. Like, why would I stop yeah. doing this? Like, amazing. Yeah. yeah. And if you're working more than ever, how do? what's your sort of – trigger what's your reminder that tells you oh i need to rebalance i need to come back to whatever it is that i've gone from right well um just just the question like what year were you built what year were you born like built Seven. born <laughs> yeah yeah no, that's good well nine languages I'll, I'll give you that one that's the first one <laughs> um 73 right so what i what i like what one of the curving learning curves for me was like you can go really hard when you're 20. anywhere after like 29 it starts to be like huh like i and i still feel look i i live aggressively i feel aggressively but i'm also i feel victimized by the limitations of the human body like what you mean i have to feed you five times a day what you mean i have to what you mean i have to hydrate i just hydrated yeah. And I'm going to the gym and I'm like looking in the mirror and seeing if I have apps and then not having apps and legitimately I'm like, well, how many times do I have to do this? Like what, <laughs> this is nonsense. Yeah. So 
there is again this balance or this dance almost where like I love physical movement. Again, put me on the range, simple labor, even doing the horse poop. And I'm like, at the end of the day, there's a, a deep fulfillment. And the fulfillment always needs to be followed up with a check in, not just a mental one, but a physical one. Like, okay, how are all my muscles feeling actually? Like, and that's for me the trigger or like the, the, the little ping. Like, how do, how do I make sure that I don't overdo? Yeah. Because the physical will show you what's going on mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Absolutely. And from a, um, I'm, I'm a very, you know, business or number person. If I overdo, it means I'm going to be out of the running significantly longer than if I just actually rest. And that works really well for me because now we're talking return of investment. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, okay, okay. I can, I, I can speak this language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Always bring it back to business, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mentioned a lot about stepping away from your family and your mother. What about your your father? Like, where was his place in all of that? Are you ready? So my biological father is a rock star in East Europe. He has 10 different kids with 10 different wives. Um, I didn't know he was my father until significantly later on. Um, mm -hmm. But I didn't grow up with a father father. Yep. However, I have been very blessed and lucky, lucky to have lived in families and um, in households that have strong father figures. And that was significantly later on. I'm talking when I was 16. So the, the safety net that a father energy provides, I learned much later on. And, it was, and I wasn't able to completely in, integrate that into my own being until like my late 20s. Um, there is this theory, I'm a licensed psychologist, so I'll, I'll probably always like jump back to certain models. There is this theory that women who didn't have a father figure growing up, they will always resort to external validation, business numbers, sport, which definitely is the case for me. Yep. Um, because it's an a, a external representation of existing, performing. Yep. So probably that. Um, and I'm just right now learning how to like translate the safety and love from the fatherly figures that came came into my life later on that weren't necessarily my father's. Um, like how, what places that have in me? So I don't have an actual answer. That's all, that's all I'm experimenting with for now. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, that you ends up being that uh, you're throwing yourself into business and all those like that. It's like competitive pursuits almost, right? Because mm -hmm. business in, in, a, in many senses is absolutely that, whether it's competing against yourself and where your business was at, where you were at. How did that play out in a negative way then through your younger years? If you, if you didn't have that father figure or consistent father figure, like, like is that, is it too easy to draw a line between like you being unsettled and, and wanting to leave the home, like without having that battle, interesting balance, right? Right. For sure. For how it absolutely turned out for me is being this extreme hyper independent woman in this case and not needing men. 
which I have completely moved away from. Um, but that's how it showed up initially. I don't need a man. I will play men because I'm a master manipulator. Um, a culturally, that's also being bred into us as women. If you have any aesthetic, aesthetic, beauty, uh, sensuality is a currency in our culture. And you yeah. will have to use that by means. So that's how it showed up in earlier years. Um, I don't even know, like almost like a little bit angry. I don't need a man. I'm hyper independent. Don't carry my back. I can carry my back. Excuse you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But like I said, I have completely moved away from that. Um, But that's how it showed up initially. Where was I going there? Um, I'll come back because there was something else there, but it's completely, oh, I know that's what it was. There you go. Thank you. The visual cue. Um, this is something that I've, I've had with other male and female, but it seems to be predominantly female. When you grow up being what the world would consider to be attractive, it comes with other insecurities also comes with a pressure to needing to be like continually feeling like you're needing other people's expectations of your, your looks. And like, was that a challenge from a young age? If that's what you learned? Yes, absolutely. So I've been taught, um, and I, and looking back, it's hard to differentiate whether that's a cultural thing or just like your family dynamic. Cause they're like, where's the overlap and where does like, where does the line end? But I've been taught you need to be slim, thin, uh, preferably blonde. Uh, you need to be a good wife. Um, and I used to do highly competitive gymnastics. And at age 10, I started growing hips. And my teachers tried to beat that out of me, like actually beat that out of me. And like, there's just not like the hips would just grow. I was still good at my gymnastics. Yeah. Um, but they would just grow. So there, there came this unhealthy relationship with body and self, which instead of taking it to extremes and trying to become whatever I was expected to be, I think that that has been a part of it. I, again, I'm thanking my brain for this for whatever reason. There was this researching and exploring, like, where does this notion come from? And how I translated it is that this notion comes from the male gaze, mm. right? So, but I learned really early on. Um, so one of my, my foster dads, the family that I lived for a while, the foster dad said, he said, Bara, you know what men do to pretty women? And I'm like, no, they're like, they pursue them and they do things with them. And do you know what they do with ugly women? I'm like, no. They pursue them too and do things with them too. And that was such a pivotal moment where I'm like, yeah, yeah wow. which is true. So at that point, my aesthetic definitely first swung into another extreme. I had black hair, piercings in my face. I was like, how far can I push it and still have a male gaze, which mm. has always been the case. Um, and I would now attribute that just to, because I'm a very like extroverted person. I, I like, I'm very, social yeah um but back then i i attributed that to aesthetic so at one point you come to this like god damn it the balance again where you're like okay i don't have to do it for the external male gaze 
So how do I want to express myself in the world and how do I want to decorate myself or show up? And I feel like being the colorful person that I am, like the colorful hair, look, I've had this for 13 years by now. So I think like that's just, just who I am. Yeah. I was going to ask, did you end up going blonde at some point because of this uh, stereotype? I've had, I've had everything. I've had platinum yeah. blonde. You know, I've, I've, I've had the highest heels and I can still parade in my high heels. Yeah. Um, I've, I have done the, you know, hung, like making sure that I've had so little food so I could be as thin as possible, but still having these ginormous hips. It just makes no sense. Um, no. So I've tried it with very little successful results. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what you described there when you said um, you tried, you know, the, the different tact with the, the piercings and, and everything else is like it didn't really make a difference regardless of how you showed up because it was still you, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Still, still, uh, we still bring forward our insecurities, our our behaviour patterns, everything. We can try and change all those things, but it comes back to that word again: balance. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did that challenge you in relationships when you were growing up? Then, if you if you lived without that consistent father figure, and and also everything you described about the influence of your mother that, that you didn't particularly take kindly to and didn't you said it wasn't beneficial in so many ways and like many benef many benefits I'm sure. Um, mm -hmm. so how did that impact you and then when you did start pursuing relationships? So one of the wounds slash programs that I still carry today um, is that I feel like I'm a burden. Um the difference, however, right now is as I'm growing older is that it's a program I'm hearing. I just don't have to behave or act upon it. Whereas when I was younger, it would show up in an either destructive way where I would uh, initiate fights, whether that was with romantic relationships or with friendships, mm -hmm. or I would test people like, how much are you willing to take from me again? No bueno, not sexy at all in any yeah, sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so feeling like a burden that that's how it showed up and still shows up. Um, difference is now that I'm just aware of it. And I, I describe it as, you know, my, my being is a soul mansion and outside of the house is construction. And on some days the construction is really loud. And on other days I'm completely fine with it. Um, but the construction is there. Yeah. So that's how I view it now. Um, but that's definitely been a big part. And it's funny when I, um, when I, I'm amazing, I am so blessed with the people around me and being able to have conversations like this, that, uh, one of my best friends, Elizabeth, her, her wound is that she feels like she's not a good, that she's not a good friend. And I feel like a burden. So can you imagine? <laughs> so I'm in her house and I don't, I kind of like minimalizing my existence. And she's like, am I, did I not make my home a home for you enough? So we're like going at it. <laughs> it's like, am I not being a good of a friend enough? And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm so, I'm like, <laughs> so it's now having language for it and 
being aware that those are just things from the past, we can laugh about it, we can bring them to the table. Um, whereas in the past, it was it would completely leave my being and myself. Yeah, yeah. So have you have you been able to like you talked about like friend relationships, but has it meant that you have you had to work through these different things in relationships? Or is it being in the aftermath of relationships that you've had to learn? Um, looking back, there's certain friend groups that I have since I was 10 years old. Um, and what, and I think those friendships and relationships survived because my wounds wouldn't trigger theirs. So they had completely different wounds that are not triggers for me. So we could com- fucking freaking balance each other. <laughs> <laughs> we, we need to stop that. <laughs> um, whereas if you, if, if your wound um, feels like a rejection or a trigger in someone else, now again, that, then we're back to demon tango. Yeah. And it just fueling, fueling, fueling until someone in pattern interrupts, which I feel like at a younger age is kind of hard. Um, so some have survived because we didn't have the same triggers um, and are now even deeper because we've been through all the flows and weird phases of life. Whereas others just perished and they're a great chapter of the book. Yeah, yeah, nice. So what about intimate relationships? I feel that I have been that I've been lucky that that I have seen a lot of turbulent relationships around me where so I have concluded that's not it. Um, However, I have not firsthand experienced a healthy relationship. So I tried the destructive relationships in various ways and I very quickly found out like this ain't it. Um, cause I do feel like I had a strong sense of integrity and what I'm willing to accept early yeah. on, maybe yeah. because there was a lot of, um, acceptance with like the family dynamics. So I wasn't willing to compromise that outside of family. Um, but that's absolutely been a, a dance where it's like, what's healthy if you don't know if you've never experienced healthy firsthand the good thing is you you don't have a reference but that's also the bad thing so you're just trying things so you don't know when it's good no exactly and there's this meme which i feel like everyone knows um where you this dog in a firehouse and he's like this is fine um and during covid without politically stuff the people who come from turbulent homes, when COVID happened and the world went to crazy, crazy states, the people who were from turbulent homes, we were all like, this is fine. Because the external chaos, and we were like, we, we know this. We're yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, and then when you come across good and healthy, it feels weird because it feels boring. It feels like the eye of the storm or the, the silence before the storm. Um, and sometimes that would result in creating the storm yourself. And other times it was like this awaiting. Yeah. And so 
some partners would create space for that and other partners would be like oh you want to storm let's go well let's storm together again like we've done all <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah which again has has its good points but also comes with repercussions absolutely, yeah. absolutely. uh yeah really fascinating the as you said that that uh that turbulent time for me it was like very blissful in so many ways it's like well this is nice and quiet and uh yeah very chilled out um again there was something there but we'll come back if if it was important you the way you're talking it just makes me think you you very visual, uh, big picture sort of thinker. Have you just got like ideas, just constantly new ideas about things and life, just constantly bombarding you? Yes. Um, I feel like my chaotic and turbulent upbringing has resulted in a curiosity, and it could have gone a completely different way, right? Yeah. Um, in a curiosity in trying to understand the human psyche and experience. I also attribute speaking many languages for that because I've always been trying to understand the language of the brain and the mind. And, and the more languages I speak, the less expressive it becomes because it's, it's just a language of its own. Mm. So I feel like visuals um, and symbolism very much help with the expression of that. Yeah, love that. Um, and ideas come constantly and yes, when when you're younger you're like i'm gonna act upon every idea and yeah, now yeah. that you're you're getting more older slash mature um you're like i'm writing down every idea still yeah. um I, I just realized not every not every thought needs to be acted upon <laughs> which a- are the good the the, the the idea ones the happy ones the blissful ones including the bad ones not every idea needs to be acted upon yeah absolutely so I think this is for, for my, my audience who are overthinkers and, and being one myself, right, it's it's like how do you get to that point? Because I know a lot of them are the same. They're, they're ideas and they're like, that's awesome. I want to do that. That's, I want to do that. I want to do that. And they start creating these long to-do lists. How have you been able to make to be decisive enough to go, nope, not that one, yes, this one, and being able to move on them? Well, I feel that for a lot of people who are in their head, um, that they are trying to solve their head with their head yeah. and um, absolutely impossible. You need to get in your body, um, preferably by excruciating hard labor or anything. Yeah. But what I noticed for overthinkers, because um, I, would, I would say I'm an overthinker myself too, that it requires a direction. So I'm... I'm gearing it towards curiosity, exploring, not enacting everything. Um, but th- this is the thing with ideas. There are, are they all, they are all theoretical and there are only based on theoretical references. So I can think all I want about climbing that mountain. And this is an analogy that I always use. I can research the best gear and I can like, talk to other people and I can make a complete mental reference about climbing the mountain, but actually climbing up that mountain is different because there's a difference between thinking that's going to be hard versus actually climbing up a mountain, feeling like your lungs are about to explode and you're fully in your body. 
And I feel like that's the thing with, plus like the, the example you used, like, you know, I have a great, great idea here. That's a shiny object syndrome, right? Yeah. That's an, um, and, and then we're going to walk the line. Shiny object syndrome is great for people who have the monetary freedom, time freedom to act upon every idea. Unless you're yeah. in that position, you cannot do that. And I would argue that if you do have those tendencies, then your one and only goal should be to practice the mental muscle of doing things past their shiny time. Yeah. Because I feel like the people who have a lot of shiny object syndrome, it shows up in everything. Relationships, they're constantly in a different industry. Their relationships are changing, exchanging all the time. And they're constantly psyching themselves into, oh no, but this idea. And it's a cycle, right? It becomes a cycle and there's little to no execution at one point. So I'm like, okay, so you have these cycles, mental cycles. You can't get out of those mentally because the, 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 the mind that created that, that problem will not allow you to step out of it. So you'll have to physically pattern interrupt. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, what strikes me there is it's almost like that savior complex again. This next shiny object is going to be the one that saves me. So it's like we've removed the uh, dependency on the person and we've created a, a new dependency on some new shiny object. Mm -hmm. mm. And, and, and I feel it's a very childlike aspect within us that yeah. doesn't accept life because life does not, does not at, end at one point. No one's coming to save us. No lottery is going to change our life. It may impact our lives. Um, but thinking that this next thing is going to be it you're chasing something and you're not willing to accept that life is a continuous thing, which is the acceptance again, that again, I have to hydrate, that I ha I'll have to do some fitness tomorrow again. I'm with everyone. I feel legit victimized by it, but alas, here we are. <laughs> it's good. I remember what I was going to say before and it ties into the overthinking and that's, um, that's the, the, the self doubt when we, like you described it, right, in the relationship. Well, I haven't had good or I haven't had great, so how do I know when I'm there? And and how much, you talked about pattern interrupt, how much that shows up in so many different areas mm -hmm. where you're just like, but the reality is it's like, well, we get to decide what's good. We get mm -hmm. to do it. So you used the word before, direction. It's like how important it is to know what you are working towards because when you have that, then the, the shiny objects – it's just like a okay. Here's my uh, here's my GPS. Does this shiny object actually fit towards this? Mm -hmm. Does my uh, do I feel like this is good compared to where it is I'm going? Mm -hmm. Then it becomes so much easier to make those decisions. So much easier to to process and and make sense of where you're at on the journey, right? Right, and I would almost argue and maybe that's a current theme of like thought construction that I'm having right now. But I would argue that people who haven't directed their overthinking in a productive way, their major problem is that they don't trust themselves to handle the disappointment. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And, and, and my addition to that would be, and who are they most worried about disappointing? Absolutely. Again, going, you'll have to be, and, 
we'll always have different ways of how we perform, right? Some people like the external validation, whether that's from a parent or an authority or a teacher. Um, some people run away from fear. Some people run towards pleasure. And you would want to have the balance of all of <laughs> I can't stand it. <laughs> but uh, I would argue that the, the people who constantly jump shiny object syndrome, they're simply not trusting themselves to be able to handle the disappointment or translate the lesson or the data from not obtaining their shiny moment into alchemizing it into something constructive. So they keep just jumping, jumping. So because when you keep jumping, you'll never come to the disappointment because you've never set a goal. So you can't miss it, resulting in that you're constantly disappointing yourself. Only your delusion yourself, like you're not, you don't have, you didn't make a measure. So you're, you just, nope. Yeah. Love it. Two more things. Well, two more. I'm sure there'll be more that come to me, but uh, just two things that really struck me. And, and both of them are linked to what you said about coming back to like how it feels in your body. Where does intuition come into that? So you said, get out of your head, come back to your body. Does, is there an instinctive part of that coming back to body, an intuitive part? Yes. And I, with all the, with all the humbleness, yeah. um, I feel like I have found a perfect way between what's intuition versus what's mental clatter. Yeah. Intuition doesn't market itself. It doesn't negotiate with you. It doesn't go like, no, but listen, and this, and wait. Inner demons, inner critic, inner perfectionist, any other, they market themselves. They have to sell themselves and their value, whereas intuition, it is. So when, for us, like serial entrepreneur people or people who love their business, there's, yeah. when, I'm, there's, when I'm tired, it's, my body's just like, I'm tired. <laughs> whereas where there's a coping mechanism, no, but you don't have to do anything. We can do it tomorrow. It has a whole conversation. <laughs> That's how I differentiate everything. Is it my body, which is then it, it doesn't negotiate with me. It just tells me anything other that has a conversation, market itself. It's trying to, like a lawyer, like try to sell it to me. Then I know it's, 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 it's irrelevant. It's some kind of mechanism. Brilliant. Love it. Uh, and the other question around body was, you mentioned really early in the conversation about that uh, disassociation from the body. So now that this is such an important part, was there a... Was there a moment in time where you did disassociate for, for whatever reason? Mostly when I was younger, when there was physical violence around me and towards me, then absolutely I went, whoop, I was out. Um, can still replay everything like a movie, very classical one. You just see it from a, um, like a camera. Um, but yeah, disassociation. I haven't disassociated, like I can't even remember the last time I have. Yeah. Um, I feel because I'm trying to nurture the relationship with my body and the instinct and everything that comes with that. But yes, there's a di I think there's a difference between compartmentalizing because clearly I can't have a meltdown in the middle of the supermarket, right? Like I, I can then pause that and just hold it for a second and then have my meltdown wherever it's appropriate. Um, whereas disassociating and be completely out and almost numb, right? Like there's nothing going on inside. Um, and I always feel like it, it, I always wondered like where, 
do the things get stored when you're disassociating? Because they don't, they don't disappear. They have to go somewhere. So this is like a big backpack we're carrying or what are we doing with the dissociation? <laughs> yeah. Like it goes somewhere, but. Yes. Well, my answer to that would be is that it does get stored in the body. That's that, that niggle in your knee or, or the mm. tension in your shoulder or the, or the uh, strange pain somewhere in your torso. Like it, it, it stores itself there until you're ready to, to deal with it. And like you talked about throughout, it's like the body will tell you. So when that niggle gets beyond a niggle and, and you'll be, you don't want to tolerate it anymore, then, then that's where you go back and uh, deal with whatever that was. Right. So, was the was the violence was it just in different moments when different people came in and out of your life was it family was it like family and physical violence yeah 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 for sure um very frequent very high intensity constant towards uh, you or or just towards me and even even around me but like i've i've been through it's one of the, like, I'm always cautiously talking about things because I don't want to sound like a victim. I've had more guns against my head that I care to talk about. I've been beaten up more times that I like feel like, and I don't mind talking about it. Um, yeah. But it's I, like I, one of those things. You r- know what I mean? Than, yeah, yeah. Rather than looking at it from like, just to me, it doesn't sound like a victim, but what it does is if you look at it from the people listening to this who have had similar experiences, they, they want to hear about it because then they can right. relate and then hear about how you dealt with it. Right. So... Yes, definitely physical violence um, from family members, um, sexual assault, finding yourself again in very less than optimal places, criminal circuits, and so all sorts of violence. And back then my go-to was, let's just dissociate. Let's just sit it through. And it was literally, and I would, I remember going into the camera mode and just counting. All I need is another moment, another second, another second. Like at one point this has to end. Yeah. And then I would like slowly descend, I guess. Yeah. Was was going through all of that, was there was there thoughts regularly of like I do need to like yes it will end, but I need to get at myself out of this. Like how do I get myself out of this? Um, yes, but I feel because what it would directly translate the kind of circling back to how we started the conversation, it was just rage, not even anger, it was rage. Um, and when, when you're younger, rage translated in the way that I was always the, like I was a tough girl, right? At school. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, later that would translate to diving and translating that rage, anger into performance in various types. But the, and, and that's what I absolutely now notice too, like the landing, the, the dip after is such a physical, exhausting thing. Like I feel when we disassociate and come back, there's such, it's such an intense physical experience, um, which often then results people in more disassociating so they don't have to deal with that. Yeah. And it's, it's just like dealing with any other addiction. Doing the addiction so you don't have to deal with the come down is 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 definitely a thing. But then we're coming back to your work work work. It's not sustainable. Mm. So how much longer are you willing to do that cycle, trying to avoid the come down, uh, yeah. n- not realizing you're going higher and higher, and the come down is going to be more brutal every step forward, 
return of investment at one point it's like okay i just need to do this yeah it it works until it stops working yeah hmm. great answer and and i'm sure many will take a lot of value out of that because uh, unfortunately it's all too common people have grown up with physical violence sexual assault all of those different mm -hmm. things it's so mm -hmm. much more common than people realize or care to admit um yeah so i appreciate you sharing that because i know that that can mm -hmm. be um yeah it can be challenging to look back at, at those moments and and reflect so now moving forward in balance <laughs> like what i know you said you've got a few different things and you and and you don't follow every object but you do just like to get yourself out there from anything from business to shoveling mm -hmm. shit, right so mm -hmm. so what's what's an exciting thing that you have for the future that that's going to be great for you but also give you that return on investment not necessarily financially i'm sure it will right. do knowing right. you, but but that that bigger return on investment which is that what it actually gives you personally right so what recently very very cliche and out of annoyance rather than desire i started a coaching i started coaching people and that started more um because people kept asking me and i was just like i need y'all to stop asking me so I'll just put a product out there. I'll put a coaching trajectory out there and this is, this is deal with it. And the people kept asking more and like, and I'm like, Oh, I actually have something to tell. I, I, I think I have some tools for you. Um, so the coaching and I hate the word. So coaching is a, a, a business thing. Again, I don't have to do it, which makes me enjoy it very much more. Yeah. Um, on a physical level, I have just, decided I'm going to run against Spartan races and I just going to do one. I want like three trifectas, um, upcoming year. So I'm going to just go ham. Spartan, hang on. Spartan races. Spartan races are Spartan races are the elite obstacle course races. Oh, got Whereas, it. Yeah. um, again, there's a whole like hierarchy, like the mud race, normal mud races. You can just go around the obstacle course at Spartan. No, you have to finish the obstacle or you have to do 30 burpees. So this right. is a new physical thing that I'm like, okay, let's do that yeah um i've i've i don't dove in have div, yeah past tense of diving um yeah. i started competitive archery which is wow. uh it's a very it's a very weird because it's a physical thing but it's also a focus and a patience thing yeah um so i have that going on and i have since i've reached kind of I've surpassed the goals that I've had in life. So I had to kind of like balance and figure out, okay, what are the new goals? And not for the sake of shiny objects, because yes, I want a Lambo and I'll have a Lambo, um, yeah. but also like what's fulfilling. So currently that's bringing me ironically back to roots where I just want a ranch and a farm and I just want to work with the land. Awesome. Yeah. Love that. Very good. Barrow, where can people find you to find out more about what it is you do? And and I will I will preface by saying you've got to be ready because she'll tell you how it is, like straight up, right? Which I love. Yes. So I'm I'm known as your most opinionated sloth, right? Um, that's how I market myself to. I'm everywhere, Barra Queen B. And I welcome everyone, however, even though I have big opinions and I know my opinions trigger people bring it 
And not yeah. in a hostile, like, I will not argue with you. I'll ask you questions. I want you, I'll invite you to think through everything. I'll adjust my opinion anytime in our time. I love adjusting my opinion if you bring actual conversation. So, yes, let's do it. Let's go at it. <laughs> so everywhere, bar a queen bee. Love it. Yeah, I, I love that because I'm sure you've had people challenge you on this too where they say, but you, but you said this. I'm like, yeah, but that was like 10 minutes ago. I've, I've had four opinions since then. Right? <laughs> and and why, why would you not want to continue to adapt and evolve and, and improve? And when something presents, it's better. Like, don't be stuck in that stubborn, righteous place. Like, go, right. like okay, let's be open to, to what else is out there. Absolutely. There are certain ideas that will absolutely, no matter how convincing arguments people bring me, I will never... You will never convince me you're helpless. I don't mm. care how much you vouch for whatever, whether it's what, how much you're like, but my mental illness or my these and these events, I don't care. Like you'll never convince me of your helplessness. If I have to believe on your behalf, I'm not going to rescue you either. You can like live your life, but I'll, I'll, I'll never be convinced of people's helplessness while, while being realistic enough that they're, very many real things going on that are very real and impactful in a negative way. So okay, balance or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm over this word. I think I found the title for this episode. <laughs> balance. It's, but this is the thing. It's not even a sexy word. Like that's not marketable balance. No, it's been done to death, but it's just, it's reality. Yes. Yes. The, the, Thing that I was drawn to when you're talking about the you know having a ranch and the coaching is like there's got to be some way you can combine those two. Like you look at like how much work's done in uh, equine therapy, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. how much it shifts your very physiology when you when you detach yourself from your day to day and you immerse yourself in nature and uh, animals and and just away from the, like. I'm, to me, that would be a transformative experience for people to come and spend time with you on a ranch. I I am always inviting everyone to come and shovel shit with me. Um, <laughs> what people hate me for and like actually hate me for is my disregarding of mental illness. Mm. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying if you aren't extremely fit, if you and you don't and you you have an amazing diet, I will not acknowledge your mental illness i would say that the way your mental going is isn't it's a direct result of your shitty food not enough outside air um so i will invite everyone just come to the ranch at one point or just come right now just come hike with me let's clean because i volunteer and clean the streets here again i'm retired i'll put on my orange vest and i'm just every plastic that has fallen off the truck fulfillment cl clarity clarity yeah. Wow. Um, so, yeah, go back to physical labor. Mm. And don't be too proud to immerse yourself in the lives of what what anyone, regular people are doing, whatever that oh, means. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah, nothing more leveling than shoveling shit, right? <laughs> so good. So good. And it's, it's, it's such a, like – I'll, I'll, I'll be shoveling shit in the arena and like there'll be this utter moment of silence and a breeze will happen and it's like, 
the breeze is telling me something. That's how it feels. Like yeah. I'm having a whole experience while I'm getting blistered up and having that. I haven't even shoveled it in my thing, but I'm like, oh my God, existential experience right here. This is amazing. Oh, it's that present moment again, right? Yes. So good. Moments of clarity, uh, which all us addicts need at some point. Mm. And, and I'm talking to everyone listening, right? Because you were like, like I referenced earlier, we're all addicted to something. Yes. Uh, oh, Bar, I've loved this chat. I, I, I can relate to so many of, of the moments. And yet our upbringing, like polar opposites in so many ways, but there is just so many common threads. And I know my listeners will get so much out of this. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you for your amazing energy, by the way. Like you're talking about presence, like you're the epitome of presence. Like you feel so present, like what a gift, what a gift, what a gift. Oof. Thank you. I appreciate that. And usually that only comes when someone's mirroring it back to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.